This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Right. Happy Sabbath. Do you guys have any good Sabbath so far? Amen. Amen. I have, I usually have good Sabbaths, but I'll tell you this, I have one big problem. Every Sabbath, I have a bad hair day. Anybody else have bad hair days on the Sabbath? Nothing works, and it just sort of puffs up. And, uh, you know, I feel like I got like a haircut from the 70s, you know, back here. And it happens every single Sabbath. No other day. It's like God says, I'm giving your hair a break too. So, (laughs) amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, do you believe that God has a very special blessing in store for us? Do you believe the Holy Spirit wants to teach us some things? Okay, just a couple things. Number one, make sure your cell phones are turned off because the devil will be using them. Number two, and if it ain't Jesus calling, you better hang up, right? Number two is this. If you are planning to leave halfway through the meeting, you best leave right now because there are people who want to take your seat, and I really believe you should be courteous and let them have that seat. If you're planning to stay here the whole time, you are absolutely 100% welcome. Amen? Amen. All right, now we can start with a word of prayer, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time. And Lord, we praise you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you so much for the awesome condescension of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your only son for us to redeem us from this great controversy. And Lord, as we dive into this, as we um, dwell With this subject, God, we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us things we've never heard before. Father, we claim Jeremiah 33, verse 3, that says, Call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. We claim that promise and we thank you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to tell you a true story. Happened to me, some of you guys heard if you listen to some of my audio verse presentations, but it's a true story. It's a story of one of my good friends. I went to school with him. He was actually a theology student. He had memorized much of uh, Revelation. I mean, he was a powerful preacher. When us young bucks got to school, I mean, he was the guy that was training everybody. He was just a real powerful, genuine man of God. Unfortunately, he fell away from Christ, and he became an atheist. And uh, what was so interesting is I had heard about him and some of the things he was getting into. I mean, he already had a lot of tats from his past, but now he was getting more tatted up. He was getting into MMA and so all sorts of things he was getting into. Smoking weed, now selling weed. And anyways, I, I found out that he became just this ardent atheist, someone who didn't believe in God anymore. And he was saying, you know what? I cannot believe in that anymore. I absolutely cannot believe in that. I remember we had a few conversations at somebody's wedding and he was just like, nope, I don't believe in that stuff anymore whatsoever. Well, one day, I was doing my devotions really early in the morning, and I read this wonderful passage in Isaiah. It's near the end of Isaiah. I believe it's Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 says this, And before you call, I will what? Answer, and while you are still speaking, I will what? Hear. I never forgot I read that verse, and I thought to myself, I'm going to text this to my friends. I totally forgot how early it was. So I sent a mass text out to my, all my friends, and then it dawned on me, hey, it's only like 5.30 a.m. And I realized I sent it to him. 
And I thought to myself, uh-oh, I'm going to be getting this barrage of curse words, you know? And so I was just there, and I was staring at my phone right at that very moment, and all of a sudden, he texted me back. Found out something happened to him. And I said to him, he said, thank you, brother. And I said, why? And he said this. In the middle of the night, I was having this nightmare. And I was just in this really gross darkness. And he was saying, I was feeling so alone, so scared. And he said, I came out of that dream and I said, God, if you're there, please show yourself. And all of a sudden, my phone goes off. And I look at the text message and you know what it says? What does it say? And wall, you are still speaking, I will what? No, we said it wrong. What does it say? And before you call, I will answer. And while you are speaking, I will what? Hear. And he saw that text message. He text messaged me back. And you know what he said? There is a God. Amen? God works in powerful ways, right? And many of you guys are here for a certain reason, whatever that reason is, to learn. But God also has other motives. He wants to share some things that's going to impact your spiritual life as well. And as we dig deeper into the great controversy, ladies and gentlemen, remember that we are dealing with spiritual forces. So the devil is going to do all he can to try to distract us from the depth of this message. I believe here you're going to be learning some powerful things that are just going to add to the great perspective and the meta-narrative. But ladies and gentlemen, we're going to realize there's an ultra-narrative to the story of the great controversy. And part of eternity will be understanding this. I had a very interesting experience not too long ago. I actually went to Pakistan. Anybody know who this individual is? Osama bin Laden, right? And where's Osama bin Laden right now? He's in the sea, right? He was uh, cremated and left at sea, right? Now what's so interesting about him is this. I actually went to Pakistan in the year 2006. I was speaking at the Pakistan Adventist Seminary there. And I asked many of the Pakistani people there, I said, do you know where Osama bin Laden is? And you know what they told me? They said, he's here in Pakistan. And I said, where is he at? <laughs> no joke, they told me he was in these certain mountain villages. And ladies and gentlemen, that's precisely where they found him. We were actually only four hours away from Osama bin Laden. Imagine that, being in a country in the same time that he was there. He actually got there a year before, is what one of the, one of, much of the military reports were saying. And he was actually stationed there. He was just four hours from the place we were at. And I thought to myself, man, I was in a country with a terrorist. Unfortunately, when I left Pakistan and came to America, they pulled me aside because they thought I was a terrorist. <laughs> my hair was still long and my beard actually had grown. And I was walking out with these Pakistani suits, so it really looked like somebody who might typify someone who may want to blow up a plane. And so I've had that experience many times. It's very fun. But ladies and gentlemen, there is a terrorist worse than Osama bin Laden. And we know about this terrorist. Many people do not accept who this terrorist really is. But you're going to learn more and more about his story, ladies and gentlemen. There is an untold story about Lucifer. A story we really don't hear too much about it. And as we dive into the spirit of prophecy, as we dive into the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be learning so much about his 
origins. And helping us to understand his origins, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, helps us understand the bigger picture. In fact, I was watching YouTube, this particular debate right here, with some Christians, some New Age people, some supposed Christians, and including this lady who actually runs this thing called Hookers for Christ. She actually came out of prostitution. And let me tell you, that woman has a real ministry. Real ministry. And while that individual up there, Deepak Chopra, you know, Indian people were all weird, <laughs> he was completely denying the existence of Satan. And this individual was also another reverend, was de denying the existence of Jesus. Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor, was actually given a decent theology on why Lucifer exists and how we are in this conundrum today. This woman right here, she perhaps gave the most spectacular argument for the existence of the devil. And you know how she gave that? She described her past life. And when she was sharing, everyone was just quiet. Everyone was listening. At the end, even one of the mediators was like, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, this woman knew from experience the great controversy and who the devil really was. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a very unusual world today. We are not living at the world our parents were living in, and they're not living, they weren't living in the world that their parents were living in, ladies and gentlemen. We are living in a very, uh, we should say, really strange times, and the most unusual things are happening in our world that have never happened before. Or did they? Did they? We're going to learn more about this first created being, and we're going to learn uh, just some interesting details. There is an untold story in the grand meta-narrative of the Bible, one that blows the door open on the great controversy. It primarily has to do with the origins of Lucifer, heaven's antagonist, and the very harbinger of sin and death upon our world today. There are many mysteries about this mighty angel that will be revealed in time. And the more we understand, the clearer God's actions become in this great drama. We will unpack some of these uh, those mysteries in this presentation. The origin of the, word of the word Lucifer, this actually comes from Richard M. Davidson, who's a professor at Andrews, and he talks about the word Lucifer. And he says the term Lucifer is in the English rendi uh, rendering of the Hebrew term Hillel, shining or brilliant one. The meaning of the Hebrew noun was preserved in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible through the Greek term. Does anybody know how to pronounce that word? Any Greek students here? That's right. Very good. The bright one or the morning star. The English Lucifer comes from what? Latin. It renders the Greek what? They're just some words in the Indian vocabulary I cannot pronounce. Into the Latin Lucifer, which simply means light bearer or morning star. The early church fathers employed the Latin Lucifer as a proper name to refer to Satan. The translators of the King James Version decided to retain the Latin term in their translation and it became Lucifer, another name for Satan. The Hebrew term was not a proper name but an epithet. Very interesting when we learn a little bit more about that title. Watch what Ellen White says right here. I ask our people to study the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. What do you find in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, ladies and gentlemen? You find out about the fall of Lucifer. She tells us that we need to study that out. The representation here made, while it refers primarily to Lucifer, the fallen angel has yet a broader significance. Not one being, but a general what? Movement is described. And one that we shall, is that past, future, or present tense? Future, one we shall witness. A faithful study of this chapter should lead those who are seeking for truth to walk in all the light that God has given to his people, lest they be, de be deceived by the deceptions of these last days. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. 
Ezekiel chapter 28. And you're going to be learning here uh, something more than you would learn in the evangelistic series, but you just got to hang on. And by the way, we're going to have a special question and answer session, and my friend Nicole Parker is also going to assist me in this as well. And so if you have some questions, please write them down, because we'll have that time towards the end. We're going to Ezekiel chapter 28. And by the way, many, people, many scholars say, well, Ezekiel 28 is not really talking about um, Lucifer. It's talking about the king of Tyre. In fact, if you take a good look at what Richard M. Davidson, he's one of the Old Testament professors at Andrews, he actually did a study and he showed in so many incredible ways how this story about this particular king actually applied to Lucifer, even in how the Hebrew was used, from this earthly prince to this cosmic king, Lucifer. All right, are we all there? Ezekiel chapter 28. Please say amen if you're there. Okay, I'm waiting. I'm slowing you down until I get there. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's start with verse 11. Let's find out about Lucifer's creation. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the who? King of Tyre, and say to him, Thus saith the who? The Lord God. You were the what? Seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in what? Eat in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who what? Who covers? I establish you. Here we read about Lucifer's perfection. Now I'm going to be adding some interesting details to this, ladies and gentlemen, something we need to be aware of. I'm going to say this statement right here, and I hope you're listening. The more we understand about Lucifer's exaltation, the more irrational the rebellion becomes. Do you hear what I just said? The more we understand about the exalted position of Lucifer, the more illogical, irrational, and unlikely the rebellion was or should have been. Now I'm going to play this out for you guys right now. We just read that this angel was created how, ladies and gentlemen? Perfect. Take a good look at some of these translations right here. New King James. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of what? Perfection. He was the what? Seal of perfection. I like the King James rendering too. Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the what? The sum. Thou sealest up the what? The sum. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The ESV says this as well. You were the signet of what? Perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, our understanding of what perfection is so dim compared to what God can do. Can you say amen to that? In fact, I'm going to share some quotes with you that are going to blow your mind right now. Take a good look at this. Before his fall, he was a covering what? Cherub, distinguished by his excellence. God made him good and beautiful. Now get this. As near as possible, like who? How much creative power did God use to create this angel? How much? How much did God use to create this angel, ladies and gentlemen? This is an inspired prophet. Take a good look at what she is saying right here. God made him good and beautiful as near as possible like who? 
ladies and gentlemen, did God give him everything that was possible for a God to give him? What could he not give Lucifer? Hey, raise your hand, I can't understand Babel. Okay, what? He did not give Lucifer creative power. And by the way, you can find that in the book of Egg, uh, the story in Patriarchs and Prophets, the chapter about the plagues. Ellen White says Lucifer does not have the power to create or give life. That is the prerogative of God alone. Was there anything else that God could not give to him? He could not give to him worship. Okay. How about as far as abilities? Yes, hand over there. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Yes, in the back. Huh? God can't give beings the ability to reproduce? Procreate. God can't give that ability? He didn't give it to him, but he could he. Okay. Anybody else? Lucifer could not be made into God. God, by definition, is a being who is uncreated. He is a being that's existed through eternity past. He is the very source of life. And this was not possible for God himself, logically, logically possible, to give to another being. Now watch this right here. To him, Lucifer, as no other created being, was given a revelation of who? God's what? What else was Lucifer given that no other being was given? What else was Lucifer given? Besides what it says right there, can you tell me what that means? What did he give Lucifer? Yes, over there. In understanding of God? In understanding of the, the depth of who God really was, ladies and gentlemen, by definition, God is what? So if he was given a revelation of God, unlike, or of love, unlike any other being ever possessed, what was he given insight into? He was given insight into the depth and personality and who God is. God, by definition, is infinite being, ladies and gentlemen, right? Now just think about this, and I'm going to add this all up just towards the end of this segment right here, okay? Trust me. Lucifer had been the covering cherub. He had stood in the light of who? God's presence. He had been the highest of all what? Created beings and had been foremost in revealing God's purposes to who? To universe. The other thing that we learn about him is that he was the highest of all created beings. In other words, this was the most beautiful thing God has ever created. There was no greater work than the creation of Lucifer. Now just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. When it came to a being that had free will, choice, nobody matched the creation. This was God's ultimate masterpiece, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, some translations render it sun of the morning star or dawn of the morning star, implying it was the first light of creation as well. Very interesting. Here's something else. Among the inhabitants of heaven, Satan, next to Christ, was at one time most what? He was the most honored of God. 
next to Christ, most honored and highest in power and glory. Before his fall, Lucifer, son of the morning, was first of the covering cherubs, holy and undefiled. He stood in the presence of the great creator and the ceaseless beams of glory enshrouded the eternal God rested upon him. Take a good look at this, his looks. His countenance, like those of other angels, was mild and expressive. Do I have a mild and expressive face? I've been told that my natural def default face is a frown. People actually have had multiple people as I'm walking, they're like, can you smile? And I'll be like, and it hurts. <laughs> I'll smile, then I'll just go back to default mode right there. But this angel was much different, mild and expressive of happiness. His forehead was high and broad, showing a powerful intellect. His form was perfect, his bearing noble and majestic. A special light beamed in his countenance and shone around him, brighter and more beautiful than, uh, than around the other angels. He shone more than all the other angels that existed. Let's find out something else. Had not the Lord, now this is powerful, ladies and gentlemen, had not the Lord made the covering cherub so beautiful, so closely resembling his own image, had not God awarded him special honor, had anything been left undone in the gifts of beauty and power and honor, then Satan might have had somewhat. In the great rebellion, what could have Lucifer said that might have had excuse? Raise your hand. Yes. Can you say it a little louder? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. That's exactly right. He could have argued, God, you have held something back from me. Now, this is extremely important. Now, this was not the primary reason why God gave him all these blessings. God gave him all these blessings because he was to be glorifying God. God does not deal with us with our potential to be lost. He deals with us constantly for our potential to glorify him. Does that make sense? Some people ask the question, why did God deal with Judas the way he did, knowing what he was going to do? Because Jesus believed there was potential for him to be saved. And God operated in that present tense with that mindset. Knowing full well who Lucifer was going to be in the future did not prevent God from doing all that he could within the dynamics of existence to see that he would have the greatest advantages and never to rebel. Every advantage was given to this angel of his looks, of his mind, of who he was, of his power. Now, putting some of this together, when we read that phrase, sealest up the sum, ladies and gentlemen, now we begin to understand what that writer meant, as near as possible like God himself. We begin to understand he was given a revelation of God's love like no other. We begin to understand he was the highest of all created beings. We begin to understand he was next to Christ and was at one time most honored of God. We begin to understand he was more beautiful than around than the other angels. Understanding all these things, when the Bible says, sealest up the sun, when it says he was perfect, we begin to understand, wait just a second, out of all the things that God has ever created, nothing ever matched the creation of Lucifer. Now we're about to break down these things. As I said to you earlier, the more we understand about the exaltation of Lucifer, the more irrational rebellion becomes. Well, how is that? I'm going to ask you some questions. Ready? Who could give you more in an actual relationship? An ant or a beetle? 
a dung beetle. Okay. <laughs> Probably the dung beetle. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question. Who could give you more in a relationship? A dung beetle or a parrot? Why is that? Oh, parrots aren't having conversation. They just repeat. I actually have a friend. She actually has a parrot. And you know what she, it, the parrot learned to do? She actually would say, when people would knock, she would say, come on in. And the pair actually began to say it with her voice. Sometimes my friend came home and there were strangers in the middle of the living room because the pair actually invited people into the house. <laughs> we went to go visit her just a few weeks ago with my intern. He never heard about this. And we knocked at the door and it said, hello, come on in. And he's about to go for the knob. And I said, that's the parrot. <laughs> it was the parrot. It was the parrot. Who could give you more in a relationship, a beetle or a parrot? Why is that? What? I'm hearing voices, but I don't hear a person. Yes. He what? He can get you stuff? I've never heard of a parrot that does that. That's awesome. Any other reasons? Yes. OK, a parrot can in some way respond to what? To you. It can love you in some sense. It may be selfish, but you can see if you give it a little bit of seeds, what's it, what it may, you know, put its wings up in the air or dance or whatever it is, it does, right? Yes, you had your hand up? That's true, it's a little bit bigger, right? Now, okay, now I'm gonna ask you another question. Who could give you more in a relationship, a parrot or a dog? Now, why is it a dog could give you more in a relationship than a parrot could? He's man's best friend, okay? Yes, what could a dog do that a parrot can't do? I don't know, I've come across some selfish dogs lately. <laughs> okay, how about you? Okay, they can protect? Oh, I've seen some parrots that can bite. Yes. Yeah, there's, in other words, there's more of a response that a dog can give you to your intentional actions. Does that make sense, right? Have you ever seen a dog, like, when you're sad? I mean, we had this, my brother had this little, it was a Scottish Terrier, and I was pretending to cry, woo-woo, like this, and it came running up because it thought I was sad, and it was just jumping, licking my face. Ain't no parrot gonna do that. <laughs> In other words, the dogs can sense more of human emotion. Now I'm gonna ask you another question. Who can give you more in a relationship, a dog or a human? You know some of those people who said dog are the kinds of people that dress up their dogs during Christmas. <laughs> you know that. And every other holiday. <laughs> Why can a human give you more in a relationship? More response, what else? Okay, I really can't hear, yes? Okay, anybody else? Yes, in the corner. There's a greater relation, okay, yes? More like you, very good, yes. More understanding, yes? How about you over there? Same language, very good, how about you? More intelligent, now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Out of all the created beings, who had the greatest amount of moral intelligence? 
Who could understand more of God's love than any other creature? And who could reciprocate that love unlike any other creature? Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Lucifer was well beyond any other created works. Nobody even came close to him. Therefore, he had a particular kind of relationship with him unlike any other kind of relationship that God had with other created beings. His moral intelligence was so much greater. He could understand more of who God was. He could respond. He could understand the depth of God's own heart. Are we tracking so far? Now think about that. Someone who understands more of you should never betray you. In other words, it's highly unlikely, even in an imperfect world, for someone who has that kind of immoral, uh, moral intelligence to betray you. Now, anybody here have good neighbors? State Farm doesn't count. <laughs> anybody here have good neighbors? You have a really good neighbor. I mean, like, we had some really, really good neighbors. And uh, growing up, I mean, they loved coming over, and we loved going over there. They loved when we cook Indian food, and you know, all these things. And it was just a wonderful relationship. Now, we had some other neighbors down the street. And these neighbors, ladies and gentlemen, we didn't know them too much, you know? And they would come down and just immerse like, really loud down the house, past the house. And uh, we found out later one day some of these neighbors, when we were gone, attempted to break into our house. Now, imagine we came back to the crime scene. Who's going to be the most likely suspect? The next door neighbor? Or the neighbor that's distant? Now when you begin to understand that basic concept, because of the closer bond, not just moral intelligence, closer bond Lucifer actually had with God, even more does it become unlikely that he would rebel. even more unlikely that he should rebel. Ladies and gentlemen, the more we understand about Lucifer's exaltation, it becomes so much more a mystery that this angel should betray God. The Bible talks so much about God, and it talks about his character and who he was and the love of Christ. And by the way, part of this session, you're going to learn about the timeline of the fall. People ask questions, wait a minute, when did the fall happen? When did the war happen? When did the uh, fall of man take place in the midst of the timeline of the, the rebellion? You're going to learn about that just towards the end of this presentation. Very clear. So we begin to understand these concepts about who God is and who Lucifer really was. And understanding that, ladies and gentlemen, think about this. How easy is it for you to sin? Some of you guys don't want to admit it. How easy is it for you to sin? Why is that? You have a nature that's inclined to sin. How easy is it for you to do righteousness? Why is that? Yeah, it is so difficult that we actually need supernatural help to help us do righteousness. Lucifer did not have a sinful nature, ladies and gentlemen. What was he created with? He was created with an ultra-perfect nature. The law of God was written in his heart. Plus, he had the capacity to understand God's love unlike any other creature's. 
And understanding that, therefore, we begin to understand something else. As difficult as it is for you to do righteousness, it should have been that difficult for this angel to rebel. His nature was so contrary to what sin is. In other words, he had to violate his sacred nature over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It was an uphill battle, ladies and gentlemen. Lucifer was given a perfect nature. The law of God was written so deeply in his heart, no other being had that kind of imprint upon his character and personality. The more we begin to understand about this angel, ladies and gentlemen, the more unlikely sin becomes. There should never have been a rebellion, ever. Sin has no justification for its course, anyways. But even more unlikely for Lucifer, and in proportionate to his ability to love, there's also the potential to what? To abuse that love as well. And he did. Now, when you do Ezekiel 28, Richard Davidson also talks about this, that you actually find a chiasm. Who knows what a chiasm is? What's a chiasm? Yes, Heather, tell us what a chiasm is. That's right. In other words, there's a literary structure. You know, an English structure will sort of look at a point, and we wait uh, chronologically towards the end or sequentially towards the end where we receive the final point. In a chiasm, it's a literary structure in Hebrew passages and writing where you actually take uh, one part of it and then you take another part of it towards the end and they begin to come closer and closer towards the middle until they bring out a certain point that's often hidden in the passage. But the writer was intending something deep. Let's find out about the chiasm of Ezekiel chapter 28. Number one, we learn about his condition before the expulsion, verses 12 through 13. We find out more about Lucifer. Number two, he was the anointed cherub who covers. And by the way, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, who did he put in charge of guarding the garden? He put cherubim, very specific. In fact, you're going to learn a little bit more about seraphim and cherubim in just a bit. I established you. See, this is what God did for this angel Lucifer on the holy mountain with God. You also find out in the, he was in the midst of the fiery stones. And eventually it gets to the center part, which is he was perfect in all his ways. And then we learn there was iniquity that was found in him. We find out that it was, he, he was no longer allowed to walk in the midst of the fiery stones. He was going to be destroyed. He was cast out of the mountain of God. We find out as we get towards the end of that passage, God says, I destroyed you. Then we find out that he was that covering cherub that God was telling, talking about. And then we find out this was his condition after the expulsion. Ladies and gentlemen, the point of Ezekiel 28, sort of the central structure is leading us to what unusual part of Ezekiel 28? Where's the tension is equal 28, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, raise your hand. Yes. Huh? Okay, what do they say? The tension is how this angel went from perfection to what? Imperfection. In fact, one of the reasons why the answer is not given is simply because it's a mystery. This angel was given a choice. We all know the story, right? 
and through his choice, he began to abuse that choice. A lot of people have questions, wait a minute, how do you take a perfect angel in a perfect place, in a perfect atmosphere, who worshiped a perfect God, in perfect communion, how could he then begin to choose? Ultimately, we need to understand something, ladies and gentlemen, he had choice. And with choice, what God does, he produces or he gives to his created beings a form or a kind of dynamic of creation. Are you listening to me? He gives them a form or dynamic of creation where they can make a choice outside of an environment. Are you listening to me? Where someone can be going completely in another direction and they can choose by their own choice to make a choice for something else. Now, there may be other factors that play into that, but ultimately, choice is left up to that being, and that is something that God gives. And what you find right there when you are taking a good look at the chiastic structure of Ezekiel 28 is that tension is introduced personally, because, uh, intentionally, because what God is trying to show is that at this point, all those things God did for him and all those things at the end Lucifer did for himself. God was responsible for his nature. Lucifer was responsible for his will. And he made decisions. And these de decisions were constantly violating his sacred nature. The cause of the cause. Why did he sin? <laughs> That's what we're going to be studying out for eternity. But take a good look at this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 and 8. Actually, take your Bible. Let's go there. I want to show you something. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 and 8. Whoever commits sin also commits what? And sin is what? Ladies and gentlemen, according to the Bible, what is the definition of sin? Lawlessness, right? What's lawlessness? The Bible says, in him there was no sin, in him there was no what? Talking about Jesus. No breaking of what? God's law. Let's keep going. As you know that he was manifested to take away our what? Take out the word sin. What's the definition of sin, ladies and gentlemen? Lawlessness. He was, take, he was manifested to take away our lawlessness, and in him there is no what? Talking about Jesus, no what? Lawlessness. Now watch this. He who sins is of the what? For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, according to the passage, what is the definition of sin? So the devil did what from the beginning? Okay. Can you make that work grammatically? The devil did lawlessness from the beginning. He broke what? Okay, when you take the Ten Commandments now, out of all the Ten Commandments, well, what laws did he break? All of them. Be specific. He broke the Sabbath. Anybody else? Yes. That's true, right? Yes. Oh, who was his mother? I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Just, yes. He what? He coveted. Very good. Yes. Okay, very good. By the way, do you know Jesus actually pinpoints specifically the law that the devil broke? Bro, take a good look at the phraseology right here, ladies and gentlemen. Precise phraseology by Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the what? Talking to the Pharisees. And the desires of your father he want to do. He was a what from the beginning? Jesus actually hones in on what specific commandment was broken, which was what? 
Thou shalt not what? Can somebody tell me the difference between killing and murder? Remember, I can't hear things unless the hand is raised. All of a sudden, my ears start working. Okay, I called on you one million times. I'm going to call on somebody else. Yes. That's exactly right. Murder has justification, right? No. Yes or no? Oh, does God kill in the Bible? God doesn't kill in the Bible. I don't know what Bible you're reading, brother. New, word, new literal translation there. Okay. Yes. Murder is premeditated. Okay. Yes. Can it still be murder if you take the life of someone who's guilty? Oh, you better be careful about that. How would you justify the murder in self-defense or killing in self-defense? I'm asking you. Okay, yeah. Okay, hold on a second. It's okay. Do you have an answer? Um, I wanted to say, if someone comes up to you and tries to hurt you, and you try to defend yourself, then, you know, you accidentally may kill them. You know, that was self-defense. It wasn't on purpose, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, very good, very good. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, murder is killing that has no justification. As simple as that. Now, how we can understand justification is another story. But pay attention to this, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus essentially was talking about the fall of Lucifer, and he said this. He honed in on specifically on the commandment that he broke, that the devil broke. But ladies and gentlemen, how many people did the devil kill in heaven? Are there angel cemeteries in heaven? Jesus actually defines what murder is right here. Take a good look at this. You are seeing something very interesting right here. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But watch what Jesus does. He goes from just the external action, and he hones in where there's a violation of that law internally. Look what he says. Whoever is angry with his brother without a what? Cause. Shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words, Jesus said, if you're angry at somebody without a justification or without, uh, you can say, authorization, all of a sudden you are violating law right here. You are breaking the law of love. What we begin to understand, ladies and gentlemen, ultimately is that the rebellion of Lucifer never had a what? It never had a cause. And when I mean by cause, I'm talking specifically why Lucifer chose to rebel. 
All we do know is that it's a mystery we're going to be studying throughout all of eternity. In fact, look what she says about sin. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. I used to read this, and I used to think to myself, oh, what she's really saying is, don't study out the subject. She's not. She's actually defining it. And it's important that we understand this definition. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious. What is that next word? Unaccountable. To excuse it is to what? Defend it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if I found an excuse for sin, what would happen to that sin? It wouldn't be sin. You know, all the times we think to ourselves, yeah, when I get to heaven one day, during the thousand years, God is going to explain everything in my life. You are wrong. There are some things that do not have reason. And that is sin. You know, one day I met this guy. And uh, my friend was, you know, we, we were at some grocery store and we're coming out. And my friend, he's just like hardcore witness. I mean, we go to Taco Bell, it's like a mission trip. So he passes out, he passes out flyers everywhere we go, okay? So we're walking out and my friend's passing out flyers. He passes out flyers to this guy who's just sitting in his car. And the guy says, hey, I want to talk to you guys. So we're like, okay. And this guy says this. He says, you guys are Christians? I said, yeah. He says, I used to be. I'm not a Christian anymore. And my friend says, why? And he says, I had a niece. She was 10 years old. She was a Christian. She got cancer. She was praying that God removed that cancer. And it never left. She died. He says, how could there be a God? Why did that happen? And my friend says to me, he's like, I'm going to let UNL take this answer. And you know what I did? I said, you know what? My I told my friend, I said, you're actually older. Why don't you deal with it? And my friend says, you know, this is what he does. He goes right back to me, okay? And he's like, you know what? No, I just feel like you should be doing this one. So I was like, okay. So I said to him, I said, you asked the question, why? I said, do you know Jesus? When he became a man on the cross, he asked why. I said, there are some things that won't be answered until we get to heaven. And then I told him this. I said, but you don't want to know what would be the greatest tragedy? And he said, what? For your niece to be there and her uncle not being there. And he just started crying at that moment. In fact, God had some other providences with this individual. I know God is trying to reach out. But ladies and gentlemen, with that understanding in mind though, understanding, we will not say, well, you know what, now I understand why this sin took place or that sin. But what we will understand that in the midst of tragedies and the midst of sin and all the things that took place, ladies and gentlemen, God actually brought good out of it in spite of what took place. And we will understand God's character and his actions during that time. And that's extremely important to understand. If we add any authorization to sin, if we add any reason to sin's existence or why it takes place, ladies and gentlemen, it ceases to be sin. Sin is that, get this, that ultimately has no authorization, no justification for its existence in this universe. In this universe, it has no authorization. When God gave to all of his beings this form of this spectrum of creation, free will, the ability to choose, have this volition, God made certain things possible, but he did not make them actual. 
mankind, these angels, made sin actual. They brought it into existence by their choice. And that's extremely important. There's some other things that have great mysteries to them, like why this computer is not working. <laughs> okay. Okay, very good. All right. Very good. Okay, we're just almost up right now. And there we go. What else she says right here? Sin is a mysterious, unexplainable thing. There was no reason for its existence. To seek to explain it is to seek to what? Give a reason for it. And that would be to justify it. That's a very important definition she's given right there. Sin appeared in a perfect universe, a thing that was shown to be inexcusable and exceeding, exceedingly sinful. Watch the ending of this. The reason of its inception or development was never explained and never can be. Even at that last day when the judgment shall stand and the books shall be opened. At that day, it will be evident to all who, is, who, who all that is there is not, excuse me, and never was any cause of sin. At the final condemnation of Satan and his angels and of all men who have finally identified themselves with him as transgressors of God's law, every mouth shall be stopped when the host of rebellion from the first great rebel to the great last to the last transgressor are asked why they have broken the law of God. Watch this. They will be speechless. There will no, be, no answer to give, no reason to assign that will carry the least weight. Ladies and gentlemen, not even God knows why sin is in existence. He even says to these great rebels at the end of time, why did you rebel? And you know what their response is? Utter silence. Not even God knows why sin exists. It will ultimately see, be seen that God never intended for this thing to exist. And that's extremely important. Now we understand a little bit about Satan. Let's talk about his angels. Or the timeline of Lucifer's fall, excuse me. All right, so you may want to write these things down because a lot of people have questions. Wait a minute, what happened here? Here are some propositional statements that will help you understand that. Number one, there was perfect harmony in the universe. Number two, that there was counsels to create mankind. I'm going to back this up in just a second. Number three, a rebellion begins to start. Number four, a revelation of Christ given, and that's probably going to be the most important point of this whole part or segment right here. Number five, there was a war in heaven. There was an expulsion. Number six, there was a a uh, creation of planet Earth, and number seven, there was the fall of mankind. You are looking at a sequence that's here, and I'm going to show you the Spirit of Prophecy quotes to back that up. Okay, this is extremely important because sometimes we ask ourselves, wait a minute, when did that happen and what happened here? Okay, but number four is the most important part, and perhaps the, we can say is the, uh, the part of the story that reaches kind of like a climax. Perfect harmony in heaven, counsels to create mankind, a rebellion begins to start, there was revelation of Christ, number five, there was war in heaven, number six, there was the creation of planet earth, and number seven, there was the fall of man. Here we go. Number one, Satan was an honored angel in heaven next to Christ, but when God said to his son, let us make man in our image, Satan what? Was jealous of Jesus. Jealous of who? Was he jealous of God the Father? That's very important. We'll come back to that. He wished to be consulted concerning the formation of man. Because he was not, he was filled with envy, jealousy, and what? Hatred. He desired to receive the highest honors in heaven next to who? God. Now watch this. Until this time, all heaven had been in what? 
order, harmony, and perfect subjection to the government of God. Now watch this. There was perfect harmony. God says, we're going to start creating this planet. And then the last thing you begin to see in this particular section is that Lucifer begins to question why he is not allowed in that council. Let's keep going. Number two. Before the fall of Satan, the father consulted his son in regard to the formation of man. They purposed to make this world and create beasts and living things upon it, and to make man in the image of God, to reign as a ruling monarch over every living thing which God should create. When Satan learned the purpose of God, he was who? Envious of who? Notice this. Where do you notice Satan's feelings directed towards? Christ. Now that's extremely important. Because oftentimes we're missing a key element in the great controversy about to be revealed. And jealous because the Father had not consulted him in regard to the creation of man. The envy and jealousy of Satan increased until his rebellion all heaven was in harmony and perfect subjection to the government of God. Satan commenced to insinuate his dissatisfied feelings to other angels and a number agreed to aid him in his rebellion. Now watch this. The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him. All of a sudden... After there was perfect harmony throughout many ages, God says we're going to be creating a beautiful planet and he allows Jesus to come into this council. However, Lucifer was not allowed and he began to get jealous at this point. He begins to speak to all the other angels. In fact, what I'm learning more and more as I'm studying all these spirits of prophecy, spirit of prophecy quotes, is that when the initial rebellion began, it was hard to pinpoint who was the one behind it. She talks so much about many times these other angels, the devil would come up to some of these angels and he would say, hey, this is what's going on in my mind. And then he would get them to repeat their thoughts and what he would do is take their thoughts and then give it to the higher order of angels and say, look what these angels are saying. And that's why the Bible says Ezekiel 28, talking about his trading. No one knew what this heavenly businessman was up to. It was hard to penetrate that. And if God exposed the devil and says, I know what you are doing, you know what Satan would say? Not me. It's all these angels. God was in a dilemma, ladies and gentlemen. He was not just dealing with a person or a being. He was dealing with an idea. You destroy the person or the being, but what does it do to the idea? It propels the idea. God had to destroy an idea now. And that was so difficult. She even says that for a while, Satan had advantage. His deceptions were so crowded in mystery. And by the way, who understood more about the law of God than other, any other created works? Therefore, he could twist it. And they could not tell what was taking place here. And showed the relation. Now watch this. The king of heaven summoned the heavenly host before him that the presence, in their presence, he might set forth the true position of his what? Son. And who was his son, ladies and gentlemen? Jesus. And showed the relation he sustained to all created beings. At this time, this is an extremely important point of the great controversy, and this is it. The angels in heaven did not fully understand the nature of Christ. That's extremely important. They did not understand. In fact, Jesus was so humble, it appeared as if he was one of them. Now let me ask you a question. If you work for, if you go into a brand new job, right? And you're working, let's say you work at Kmart. I worked at Kmart a long time ago. You work at Kmart, and your best friend is already working there. Your best friend is a manager. He's not going to get you this job. So you're like, okay. And you're working that job. Both of you guys are working that job. 
you really wouldn't be jealous of someone who was already established over you. But say your best friend says this, hey, I'm not the manager, I just work in the sporting goods department. Hey, I want you to work in the sporting goods department with me. So you guys do as associates. But what happens is you start seeing him get promoted over and over again. Which one are you more likely to be jealous of? In other words, you're more likely to be jealous over somebody you thought was your equal, but then being exalted right before your very eyes. Not someone who was already established above you. Does that make sense? In other words, we begin to understand that Lucifer began to be jealous of Jesus as he, from his humble state, was being exalted over and over right before him. In fact, this actually plays out. Take a good look at this. The Son of God shared the Father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled them both. Around the throne or about the throne gathered the holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Watch this. The most exalted angels as ministers and subjects rejoicing in the what? By the way, what is light according to the Bible? Light is new truth. It's what truth? When they were rejoicing during this heavenly council, why, what light were they rejoicing in, ladies and gentlemen? They were rejoicing in the fact that Christ was one with God. And to them... All these angels, even Lucifer for a time, bowed down during this time, and he was swept away with the praise of Jesus, this humble being. And that's extremely important. Let's keep going. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. And to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. Yet the Son of God was exalted above him as one in power and authority with the Father. He shared the Father's counsel while Lucifer did not thus enter into the purposes of God. Now watch this. Why, questioned this mighty angel, should Christ have the what? Notice this. He's noticing Christ being exalted. He's questioning that. Why should Christ have the supremacy? And why is he honored above who? Notice that he is seeing Christ being exalted right before his very eyes. And what God was essentially doing, primarily doing, was to reveal more and more the Godhead to these beings. God is an infinite being. Can you say amen to that? And he has a job, a very difficult job. An infinite being has to reveal himself to finite creations. Therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit took on certain roles. Jesus took on the role of being the Son of God, the example, the visible example for all the created works. The Father would represent the source of power, light, and truth. And the Holy Spirit would dwell in each one of his beings. And through this latter, they were helping created beings understand an infinite God. Because it was a very difficult thing to do. God entered into creation so that mankind, so that angelic beings, unfallen worlds could understand more and more of this very big, very infinite, limitable God. And that, why, that is why the condescension is so super important to us. However, this angel misinterpreted what was taking place. He, Satan, was not immediately dethroned when he first ventured to indulge the spirit of discontent and insubordination, nor even when he began to present his false claims and lying representations before the holy angels. Long was he retained in heaven. In other words, there was this long period of probation where God was working with him and pleading with him again and again was he offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. 
Such efforts as God alone could make were made to convince him of his error and restore him to the path of resistitude or rectitude. God would preserve the order of heavens. And had Lucifer been willing to return to his allegiance, humble and obedient, he would have been reestablished in his office as covering cherub. But he stubbornly justified his course and maintained that he had no need of repentance. It became necessary for the Lord of heaven and earth to vindicate his justice and that the honor of his throne and Satan and all who sympathized with him were cast out. Number six, after the earth was created, the beast upon him, the father and the son carried out their purpose, which was designed before the fall of Satan to make man in their own image. Lucifer desired to be first in heaven. Now watch this. Here's some timeline sequencing. Thus he introduced sin into the universe, entering the Garden of Eden after his what? So the creation of planet took place after the expulsion of Satan, and then you have the fall of mankind. So you see that sequence being formed right there. He succeeded in deceiving our first parents. Now, a lot of people ask the question, wait a minute, when you think about, when you think about Lucifer and you think about one-third of heaven that rebelled, who actually rebelled in heaven? Now, what I'm going to share with you, ladies and gentlemen, is something we could say is something that is still being understood. Does that make sense? You have two classifications of angels that are actually given in the Bible. Now, there are thrones, dominions, principalities, but two, what two classifications are we given about angels in heaven? Seraphim and what? Cherubim, right? And what was the devil? He was a cherub, right? Now, watch this. We find out some of the verses that are used to describe cherubim. Look what the Bible says in Psalms 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples, what? He dwells between the what? What angels are closest to God? Cherubim. They are the closest to God. Now watch this. Talking about the seraphim found in Isaiah 6 verse 2. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his what? Face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he what? When these angels are in the presence of God, what do you notice about them? What? there seems to be more of a, a covering. Now, the reason I'm bringing this point out is because Angel Manuel Rodriguez, who's, head, who's uh, retired from the BRI, do you know what the BRI is? The Bible Research Institute makes a very interesting claim, and we are here to examine claims and check it out for the, ourselves, right? We don't say this is absolutely truth until we know what the scriptures are teaching, right? So I'm going to present something to you that he presented in, I believe it was Adventist Review some years ago. Look what he says right here, talking about seraphim. The meaning of the Hebrew term seraph, plural seraphim, is uncertain. Most suggest that it's derived from the verb seraph, which means to burn completely. The noun seraph would then mean the burning one, fiery one. Why are they called seraphim? The verb to burn could express the idea of brightness, suggesting that the seraphim were angelic beings of extraordinary brightness or fiery appearance. Perhaps their brightness, their six wings, and their position with respect to the throne of God distinguish them from cherubim who are often associated with the throne of God. Two passages in Isaiah associate seraphim with evil. This may go back to the experience of Israel in the wilderness. 
The wilderness in the Bible is a symbol of death and a residence for demons. The Israelites, who during the time of Isaiah were asking Egypt for support, are described as going through the desert, a land of hardship and distress, lions and lioness of adders and darting snake. And that word darting snake right there is the, the word that's being used. Literally, flying serpents. Watch what he says right here. Animals could be used as symbols of, demonic, uh, of the demonic. And the prophet could be suggesting that the road to Egypt is one where demonic powers reside. In this case, the flying seraph would represent evil angelic powers, where Egypt is identified with Rahab, a demonic monster defeated by the Lord. In Isaiah 14, verse 29, the Philistines should not rejoice because a king worse than the others will come. He will be like a flying seraph. Neither in Isaiah 30, verse 6, nor in Isaiah 40, 14, verse 29, is the seraph identified with the serpent. In both cases, it flies and is a symbol of evil that could stand for demonic powers operating within history. This may suggest, watch his suggestion, that Lucifer was supported by the who? The seraphim. Now, I was going through that, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if the spirit of prophecy says anything about that. Look at this. When the Lord created these beings to stand before his throne, they were beautiful and glorious. Their loveliness and holiness were in accordance with their exalted station. They were enriched with the wisdom of God and girded with the panoply of heaven. They were Jehovah's minister. But who could recognize in the fallen angels the glorious seraphim that once ministered in the heavenly court? Now, I'm not sure right here if Ellen White's just simply using that word seraphim overlapping with angels, but the Holy Spirit did inspire here, and she is saying right here, ladies and gentlemen, that seraphim rebelled. In fact, when you look at what Angel Manuel Rodriguez was saying, that in the Bible, that word is used negatively more times than positively and associated with demonic powers. But in heaven, we'll ultimately know the answer, Right? didn't want to share that with you. We do know that seraphim are not as close to God as the cherubim are. There's only so much they can stand within the glory of God. But the cherubim, and by the way, what people, what beings did God use to guard the Garden of Eden? And what being caused the fall of mankind in the garden? Cherub. In fact, the word cherub, I believe, appears over 50 times in the Bible, and every time, besides talking about Lucifer, it's used positively. In fact, when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, God tells them to do what? Build two cherubim that are looking at the law of God. Very interesting. Take a good look at some of this. Now when it comes to their destruction, we're coming down towards the end. The whole universe will have become witnesses to the nature and results of sin. And its utter extermination, which in the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor to God, will vindicate his love and establish his honor before a universe of heavenly of beings who delight to do his will and is whose heart is his law. Ladies and gentlemen, if God destroyed Lucifer and those angels and all the wicked a thousand years ago, would that prevent sin? Would that deal with the problem of sin, yes or no? Why not? Wait, what? Yes. Okay, stop right there. 
Let me ask you a question. What does it tell you about the nature of sin then? Okay, anybody else? It has to be exposed, yes? Okay, anybody else? Yes? Huh? Ladies and gentlemen, sin is more than just homosexuality. Sin is more than just adultery. Sin is so deeply rooted that God actually has to deal with also not just sin, but the potential for sin as well. The idea. And if he prematurely carried out the destruction of Lucifer, it would have caused another Lucifer to come back. See, God had to calculate the timing of this, and this is extremely important. Until sin was completely right, like you were saying, and righteousness was completely ripened as well, could God then effectively deal with the sin problem? Look what she says right here. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. So not when, not so when, when the great controversy shall be ended. Then the plan of redemption, having been completed, the character of God is revealed to all what? Created intelligence. Then the extermination of sin will vindicate God's love and establish his honor before a universe of beings who delight to do his will and is, whose heart is his law. Ladies and gentlemen, who kicked the Lucifer out of heaven? Who? Was there war in heaven, yes or no? Who kicked him out? Did Lucifer have access to heaven still? So did he kick him out? He kind of kicked him out? Sort of? Anybody know the answer? Who kicked Lucifer out of heaven? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Who kicked Lucifer out of heaven? Yes. Okay? Yes? Heaven kicked Lucifer out of heaven. Now, there was in the initial rebellion an expulsion or a removal or an exiling of some type, but apparently Lucifer still had access to heaven. You can read about it, right? Ellen White says he would show up at the gates of the New Jerusalem to tempt and annoy. He would show up at the gates as angels were coming in to tempt and annoy them. He would go to unfallen worlds and tempt and annoy them as well at the gates. He was seeking to win allegiance. The reason why God did not expel Lucifer completely out of heaven is because there were still people in heaven up to the time of cross that had sympathy for him. And that's why when sympathy was lost, the Bible says in Revelation 12, neither was there a place found in heaven, what? In other words, this is extremely important, don't miss this point, wherever Lucifer has an audience, he has property. Do we understand that? Wherever Lucifer has an audience, he has property. And when did he lose all of his heavenly property, ladies and gentlemen? So he went to his country home after that. And he's got property there, and where is his country home? 
He's got an audience somewhere. It's this planet. By the way, when you're looking about the destruction of humanity in Revelation 20, when they're being destroyed, you know what it says about them? Neither was there a place found for them any longer. The same language is employed talking about the wicked. Why? Because this universe is no longer inhabited or inhabitable for sinful people. And that's extremely important. We're coming down to the end of this, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my final statement right here. Second to last final statement. The destruction of Lucifer and his angels has to be timed correctly. Any premature decision on God's part will only lead to other questions down the line. Not until all questions are answered in the great controversy does God carry out judgment. And when he does, it will be seen as the best line of action for all of his creatures, fallen and unfallen. With that perspective in mind, we begin to understand that the utter finality of sin has more to do with the creation that is understanding and convinced of sin rather than mere fire and brimstone at some random time. When all the principles of the great controversy are finally ripened and clear, when the universe is in consensus, when there is no question about God's character, can God, now this is extremely important, can God only effectively secure the universe and preserve freedom simultaneously and eternally? Eternally, and I prayed before I wrote that because I was like, God, I don't know how to write this. But that ending is super important, ladies and gentlemen. When everything is out in the open, can then he, he can only then say, you know what, the universe will be secure eternally and freedom is preserved throughout that. Ladies and gentlemen, ultimately, it is the universe that aids in the expelling of sin. There are two mysteries in the Bible the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of godliness. One is the story of how a creature attempted to become God, and the other is the story of how God became a creature. The story of rebellion and the story of the cross will be themes throughout eternity. They're called mysteries, ladies and gentlemen, because you had a fall, uh, an unfallen being who made a choice that he was going to do something that was so irrational and unusual. The mystery of godliness is the story of a God who didn't need to love us, who had no reason that could be put on paper of why he should still care for people like us, still made a choice. And those two choices will be studied throughout eternity. And more and more, we will marvel in the love of God and praise him for his goodness and kindness to us. Don't you love a God like that, ladies and gentlemen? We're living in such important times, and God wants us like never before, to share the message of his redeeming love, that he's coming back to destroy Satan and the power of sin. Let's pray, and then we'll have our Q&A. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much. Thank you, God, that every person who's here right now is because you want them to understand they are playing an eternal role in this great controversy. And Jesus, we pray and ask that more and more we would understand your grace and your love. And then we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.